Let's take our Bibles tonight. We're going to turn to the book of Genesis once again. Genesis chapter 2. And we have for several weeks now on Sunday nights been uh, in a series on the Christian home. And we've actually spent a, a good portion of time in Genesis, in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And tonight won't be any different because really... If we want to understand, and there's a lot of Bible that deals with the home and the family, and we'll be getting to that as we go, but if we really want to understand God's design and God's purpose for the family, we have to look back prior to the fall and prior to sin and the way that God designed it, the way that God intended it. There are several truths that I think are important for us to understand And that is, uh, or a few of those are are this. First of all, you need to understand that that Satan is after your family. He's after your family. He's after your marriage. He's after your children. He wants to tear down and to destroy. Remember, he's our enemy. He's the deceiver. He's the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus said, calling him a thief, he said that the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And your life and your family is no exception to Satan's attempts and desire to tear down. We talked about the fact that God created the family and even used uh, the the, the family as a a way to picture his relationship between God and man. He used uh, marriage as, as a picture between the relationship between Christ and the church. He used the the example that that we are to relate to Him as our Heavenly Father. And so God used the home as a way to describe the way that He relates to us and we are to relate to Him. And so it just stands to reason, doesn't it, that Satan would want to destroy that picture. Satan's always trying to destroy the picture that God wants uh, to, teach, to use to teach us something. And so that's, that's one truth you need to be aware of. As we go through this series on the home and the family, you need to understand that you and your family have a target on your back that the enemy is seeking to destroy. Secondly, the other side of that is this, that God is seeking to build up and strengthen your home. God wants your marriage to prosper more than it is currently. And that doesn't matter where you are in life. God wants it to do better, I can guarantee. God wants relationships between children and their fathers and their mothers to be strengthened. God wants that. He wants uh, uh, the, the sibling relationships to be strengthened. The Bible talks a lot about how wonderful and and how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I understand that sometimes that term brethren is used in a spiritual sense of the family of God. But isn't it interesting that even even our relationships with God's people are, are likened to that of that which is in a home? And so God wants our family relationships to be stronger. Satan wants to destroy. God wants to strengthen. But then the third thing that I want everyone to be aware of is that the the picture that we have of a family, no matter what it is and no matter how good it is, the picture and experience that you have had within a family, whether it's your own marriage and children or even if it's the home that you grew up in, that picture to some degree or another, has been tainted by sin. 
And so we have to be careful then not to judge family relationships from the standpoint of thinking that this is the way that God designed it and this is the way God made it and then looking at all of the flaws of maybe our father or our mother uh, or the, you know, the, the, the dynamic between our parents or the dynamic between us and our siblings or maybe you've been in a bad marriage and had a, a bad experience there. You can't look at things and say, uh, well, you know, I don't believe in, and you'll hear people say things like this, I don't believe in marriage. And their whole concept is based upon, it's founded upon, what they have seen and what they have experienced. And folks, as Christians, we need to understand, let's take a step back and, and realize that the things that we experience and the things that we have to deal with are a result, the negative things are a result of sin. And so if we really want to know, okay, Lord, you want to strengthen my home. Satan wants to destroy my home. That means I need to know what is God's design, what is his intention, and how do I get away from the enemy and, and even the, the, the concepts that maybe have formed in my mind about what a family is or isn't, and how do I get back to what God designed and desired when he instituted the family in the home? And so that's why we're spending some time in Genesis, because we're trying to go back to the beginning before the fall to see, okay, what was God's intention? What was his plan? What was he doing when he created the family? We took some time and looked at the purpose of the family and, and God's purpose for our lives being lived out most of the time, oftentimes within the context of the family. We looked at what it means to be biblically what it means to be a man. What is biblical masculinity? What is biblical femininity? And then tonight I want to just kind of begin to broach the subject of marriage. And the reason for this is again, as soon as God created man, he created woman, and once he had created man and woman, he put them together and joined them together in marriage. And that was the, that was the start. That was the foundation of the family. So we're going to read here tonight in Genesis 2, beginning in verse number 18. And if you're there, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together tonight? Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And here's the marriage, therefore... Shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And then verse 25 is often ignored, but it's actually very important. It says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
tonight, would you speak to us through your word? Would you strengthen our family relationships? Would you strengthen our marriages as a result of what your word has to say? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing tonight. So here we read of this first marriage that took place. It was a marriage that was conceived in the mind of God. It was a marriage that was created. We can literally say Adam and Eve are the only two people ever on the face of the earth that have ever existed in history that can honestly say we are a match made in heaven. Because that's exactly what happened. I mean, there was no denying. Adam never had to sit back and wonder, you know, I wonder if Eve is the right woman for me. She was the only woman, right? She was the one that God had created and designed just for him. And God here lays out for us this beautiful and wonderful description of what life was like in a marriage that had not yet been tainted by sin. I want to just show you this design tonight because, again, the world, sadly, is, is, is looking at marriage and family through this lens that has been colored by sin. And I'm hearing more and more and more people saying things like, I don't believe in marriage or I don't ever want to get married. And they have several reasons for that, but usually it goes back to things that they have seen and they've experienced. They grew up in a home where mom and dad fought all the time. They grew up in a broken home where, where dad left and mom was left to raise the kids by herself. They grew up in a situation maybe where there was uh, a divorce and remarriage and there were complications with, uh, with step-parents and stepchildren and, and different things that happened and they look at it and they look at the divorce rate uh, that's, that's in our nation today and they say, you know, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to, to get married and, you know, it, it, it just never works out the way that it, that it was supposed to. Now, there's a couple of things about that I, that I think are important. Again, people see the, 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 the concept of the home and the family through the lens of what they have seen and experienced, but oftentimes the, their disappointments are based upon their experiences, but they have this expectation of what it should be that actually wasn't based on the Word of God or God's design, but it was based on this Hollywood concept of the fairy tale uh, life where you know people meet and fall in love in their late teens or 20s, and then they just live happily ever after. You know, the rest of the story, they never have another argument. They never have uh, you know any more challenges in life. They never have another trial. Life is just good and great. And wonderful, and then they follow the process that the world has prescribed of falling in love, which again has nothing to do with the biblical understanding of what love is and what marriage is. They pursue that with this expectation of how wonderful things are going to be. They get into it and find out this person is flawed, this person is sinful. And their expectations are dashed. And then, again, all their negative experiences oftentimes cause them to think it's just not worth it. And tonight, can I just be countercultural in telling you that marriage is a good thing? Amen. Marriage is a good thing. Now, I know probably someone is sitting here listening to me and thinking, you don't know my marriage. 
Uh, but I'm just telling you in a very general sense, marriage is a good thing. How can I say it is a good thing? Well, first of all, I can say it's a good thing because it was designed by God. God made it. And God doesn't make bad things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And he said in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. It's from God and God created it and God designed it and therefore it is as an institution a good thing. Let me, let me show you from this passage of Scripture what the purpose was of the very first marriage. What was the purpose of the institution of marriage? Well, look at verse number 18. He says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. The very first idea or concept of marriage was that of companionship. Uh, Adam is a man. Yes, he has fellowship with God. But unlike the rest of the creation, the rest of creation, they all, they all had someone like themselves. You can imagine and picture with me that Adam was watching and observing the animals of the world and, and probably observed in the animal kingdom, uh, you know, male and female and, and, and companionship as they would spend time together and, and sometimes even play together and do those things. And while Adam certainly in his state was content and happy with the life that God has given, there was certainly no denying the fact that there was something missing. Adam didn't have another person like him that he could spend his life with. And so God in his infinite wisdom and mercy and love said, I'm going to bless Adam with someone like him. Someone different than him, but someone like him that he may have companionship because it is not good that man should be alone. If you're here tonight and God has blessed you with a marriage, I want you to set aside in your mind whatever struggles, whatever challenges you may have faced or may be facing, and I just want to encourage you, you ought to thank God for companionship. Amen. You ought to be thankful that God has given you someone that you can go through life together with that person. That's a blessing from God. God designed marriage for companionship. Secondly, he designed marriage for partnership. He said in verse, at the end of verse number 18, after he said it's not good that the man shall be alone, he said, I will make him and help meet for him. I'm going to design someone that's going to be able to assist him and labor alongside of him and encourage him in the work that I've given him to do. I'm going to give him a partner so that they together can accomplish my purpose. Folks, I want to say to you tonight, and I don't want this to be all about me. I don't want this to be all about my home. I will be the first to admit that, that we have not had the perfect marriage. We have not had the perfect family but I am sure thankful that God has given me a life partner with whom I can serve Him. I'm thankful that my life in serving the Lord isn't just about me serving God. I'm thankful that He's given me a family with whom I can, I can partner in this together. And I can tell you my greatest helper in life is my wife. I'm thankful for her. God created this as a good thing for companionship for partnership. And let me say this as well. He created 
marriage for intimacy, a closeness. Notice he says in verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Marriage is the only relationship, the only human relationship that exists where two people can be totally and completely open with each other appropriately. It is the only context in which two people, two individuals, can share absolutely everything about themselves without shame, without guilt. And friend, that is a good thing. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter uh, 13 and verse number 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Do you see how, how distinct and different that is from the world's concept of love and intimacy and relationships? That which, which God said in, in, in the setting of marriage and within the bounds of marriage, anything goes because these two people belong together and they have freedom and intimacy and they are one. They're one flesh. This is the merging of two lives and it is the only earthly relationship in which there can be total openness and it be pleasing to God. There's no shame. Amen. That's God's design, friends. It's God's design and it's a good thing. God created marriage to be a good thing. And yet you look at marriages And what marriage have you ever seen or experienced that didn't bring with it some degree of difficulty, pain, sorrow, even heartache to some degree? Folks, there is no such thing today as a perfect marriage. There's not. And sometimes I'm afraid that we, kind of like the world, get a fairy tale view of what marriage ought to be. And because our spouse doesn't measure up, by the way, it's not just your spouse that doesn't measure up, it's their spouse too. But because our spouse doesn't measure up to our expectations, we feel as though maybe we don't have what other people have. And sometimes you may even look at other people's relationships and say, I wish my marriage was like this. I wish my home was like that. And I just want to say to you, there is no such thing as a perfect home. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And it's easy to look at other churches and from a distance and from an outsider perspective say, boy, I wish our church was like this or like that. But friend, you get in there and the grass isn't always greener on the other side. There's not always a, you know, there, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect job. There's no such thing as a perfect home. There's no such thing as a perfect car. I mean, just in life, this is, this is something we need to learn, isn't there? Isn't it? Amen. 
So because of that, because we understand, okay, we, we have no such thing as a perfect marriage, my job then is not to look at my home and look at someone else's home and say, I wish it was like that, but rather to look at the Word of God and say, how can I get closer to this? How can I work on this relationship so that it, it, it more aligns with what the Word of God says it ought to be? Yes, it is true that marriages are imperfect. And let me show you why that is. Because chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2 gives us this beautiful and wonderful picture of the merging of two lives where Adam and Eve were totally and completely for and with one another. They were one flesh. And they lived together in harmony and they lived together in peace and unity with no shame. And the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, introduces us to the enemy. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You know what happened? The enemy entered the picture and he began to attack this beautiful and perfect thing that God had made by bringing in a lack of contentment with what they had. by trying to cause them to question God's Word. And by trying to cause them to believe that if they just did this, if they just partook of this fruit, that their lives would be better. Isn't it interesting how Satan will often tempt through lack of contentment? And if you just had this, Eve, if you just took of this fruit, You'd be like God's. In other words, your life would be better. And he began to tempt. And rather than, and rather than them finding contentment in this wonderful thing that God had given to them <clears throat> through their creation and their relationship and their, their purpose and their, the, the work that God had given to them, uh, they began to look elsewhere because the enemy began to attack. I think it's important to, to recognize that God's first creation, as far as an institution is concerned, was the home. And Satan's first attack was on the family of the home. <coughs> we know the rest of the story that they, <coughs> Eve first, and then Adam yielded to the temptation to disobey God. They partook of the fruit and brought sin into the world. We could talk for a long time about the consequences of that sin. But I think one of the first instances or the first evidences of the consequence of sin was revealed in their home, in their family, their relationship. Because at the end of verse 25, or the end of chapter 2 and verse 25, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And this is... This is part of the description of the relationship between Adam and Eve. And yes, their lack of shame before God. Their relationship to God. But look at verse number 7. As soon as they ate of the fruit, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Why? They were ashamed. The perfect, beautiful, holy relationship had been marred by sin. Shame entered the picture. And from that point forward, there would be no more such thing as a perfect marriage. God deals with the serpent and his destruction, his temptation of Eve. But look with me, if you would, at verse number 16, because God is going to pronounce judgment on Eve and then also on Adam. And look what he says to Eve. He says, unto the woman, he said... I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, you can read a commentary and probably hear someone say that the reason that God has ordered within the home for the husband to be the head and the leader of the home is because Eve was the, the one who first sinned and therefore she had to submit to him. And they really paint it as though a wife's submission to her husband is a result of sin and a result of the fall. I don't believe that's the case. I believe God created Adam and Eve with that intention that Adam would be her earthly head and that she would follow his leadership but I do want to say this. Why was this part of the curse? Because when the curse came as a result of the fall, it really didn't change God's purpose and God's intention, but it made things that God wanted more difficult. So think about this. Follow this with me if you would. He says to the woman, verse number 16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow... Thou shalt bring forth children. Now you might look at that and say, well, women didn't have to bear children before the fall. Actually, though, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So God, even before the fall, even when everything was in its perfect state, told Adam and Eve to multiply to have children. Eve was always going to have children. She was always going to conceive and bear children. The curse was that it was no longer going to be pleasant. It wasn't going to be an easy uh, situation. It was going to be in sorrow. And it was going to, uh, she was going to bring forth uh, in sorrow. Verse number 17. Let me give you another example. And, Adam, uh, and unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust, unto dust uh, shalt thou return. So, you might look at that and say, well, God cursed Adam by making him work and labor. No, that's not true either. 
work and labor came before the fall. Look at verse number 15 of chapter 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So God created man and he gave him a job to do. And God created a woman. And, and, and one of the things for, that the woman was to do was to bring forth children. God created a man and a woman, put them together in marriage, and, he was, and the husband was to be the leader. And all of these things were good, but then sin entered the picture, and it took everything that God had made, and it made it more difficult. Because now the woman, when she conceives, it's not a pleasant thing, it's not an easy thing. My wife has been through seven pregnancies and deliveries, and I have seen her literally, I have seen her body go through unimaginable Pain, not just in giving birth, but in, in, in you know, just, just the pregnancy and, and sickness and pain and all kinds of, of things. And, and even today, uh, after seven pregnancies, she continues to have some health issues and things that are, have been affected by bearing children. I've seen her deliver children seven different times and, and seen her literally go into the jaws of death. I mean, there, there were a couple of times where uh, it, we, we didn't know if she was going to make it. I remember after Isaac was born, just within just a couple hours of him being born, she got up and, and, and went to move from, uh, from one hospital bed to another and essentially collapsed there, and her blood pressure went down to nothing, and they thought she was bleeding internally, and they were rushing uh, doctors and nurses in there as quick as they could and trying to get blood transfusions, and they were afraid they were going to lose her right there. I remember after, I think it was after Cherith was born, an, an issue that was very similar. It was a scary situation, and, and, and we just weren't sure how it was going to pan out. And I've seen her now seven times go through this process where she's put her life on the line to bring forth a life into the world. It's not an easy process. I was joking with someone the other day about the fact that if, if it was men that had to bring children into the world, we'd have a negative birth rate, you know? Some of us would be too scared to do it, and the others would say, you know, the tough ones that would probably do it one time, and that'd be it. So God, it, you know, it was something that was good, but it became difficult. It became a problem after the fall. Work was what man was designed to do. Adam was supposed to labor. He was supposed to work in the garden. He was supposed to till the ground. He was, he was supposed to, to plant. He was supposed to harvest. This was his job. He was to dress it and to keep it. And it was a good thing and it was a pleasant thing and it was a right thing. But then because of sin, work became laborious. Work became difficult. Work became problematic. And now some of you are thinking, man, tomorrow morning is Monday morning. I've got to get up and go to work. Because it's hard. Because it's not easy. It's not pleasant anymore. Now let me ask you this. Is, it, is work worth it? Well, of course it is, or you wouldn't do it. I mean, it's hard, and it's, it, it's, it's difficult, and maybe you'll even learn to come to a point where you kind of enjoy it, but, but you know it's just, it's hard. But you've got to eat. You know, you've got to have a place to live. You've got to have a purpose in life, so you work. That's what you do. And at the end of the day, I think we can say it's worth it. In all labor, there's profit, the Bible says. It's worth it. 
Is having children worthwhile? Well, to anyone who has children, the answer is a resounding yes. Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. And though it's not easy, and by the way, those of you who have children know that the pregnancy and the delivery is just the first part of the difficulty. Because you raise them, and there's challenges and, and difficulties, and sometimes they, they grow up, and, and there's health issues that, that, that are a strain on you, or there are bad choices that break the heart of a parent, and it's difficult, and it's troublesome, and yet there's no parent in the world that says, I should have never had my kid. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. And so when it comes to marriage, friends, understand, it was designed in a perfect way. It's been tainted by sin. And I want you to know that a good marriage and a right kind of marriage is not going to be easy. And it's going to take some work. And it'll never be perfect. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And wherever you are in your marriage relationship, can I just encourage you be thankful for it. Work on it. Because it's worth it. It's something good that God designed. Now, how do we get back to God's way? Why, why did marriage become hard after the fall? Why, what, what made it difficult? Think about this with me. Why was it that God used the curse to say to Eve that one of, one of her curses was that her desire was going to be to her husband and that he was going to rule over her? Why is that a bad thing? Because now the person who is supposed to be the leader, it's a, it's a lot harder to follow a sinful man than an innocent man. It's a lot harder to submit to a guy whose fellowship with God isn't always what it ought to be. It's a lot harder to follow a man who doesn't always lead you to do the right thing. Quite honestly, it's a lot harder to love a woman who's been tainted by sin. So it was harder, but how do we get back to God's plan, God's intention, God's design? Well, let's go over to the New Testament, if we can. In Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is a, a portion of Scripture, the, the latter half or so of the chapter, is very famous and well known for teaching on marriage and what the marriage relationship is to be. And I have no doubt that in the course of our series here, we're going to be referencing this passage of scripture quite a few times, but I, I want to point something out to you here. Verse number 22 of Ephesians 5, look what it says. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Is that what it says? Not really. That's not all it says. It says, as unto the Lord. Amen. Then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the, the wives be to their own husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives. Is that what it says? Well, not entirely. It says, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You know what the answer is? If, if the problem, if the detriment to marriage is sin, and sin messed it up, then the only way to rectify that, and the only way to cleanse that and to fix that, is to come to the Lord. Sin problems can only be cured by Christ. We are born into this world with a sin nature. As soon as we are intellectually and spiritually able to grasp the concept of right and wrong, good and evil, we automatically choose sin. Every single one of us. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. You've chosen it, I've chosen it, and our lives are touched by sin, aren't they? Actually, prior to Christ, they're controlled by sin. They're in bondage to sin. But there's a solution, isn't there? The solution is Christ. Come to Christ, and He'll solve your sin problem. I mean, he offers forgiveness and restoration. He offers freedom from sin. If you'll just simply come to him by faith and say, Lord, I can't fix my problem. I need you. He solves it. And the same is true for everything in your life that is negatively affected by sin. You can't fix it, but God can. If you're here tonight, you've got some struggles, some strain in your marriage, let me tell you, you're not going to fix it. But God can. And the only way, really, to let God fix it is to come to Him humbly, to yield to Him and submit to Him. And so, we often preach this and talk about this. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. And wives will say, but you don't know my husband. How can I submit to a man that, fill in the blank, how can I follow a man like that? And so he doesn't stop there. He says, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, wives, if you want your marriage to be what it ought to be, you need to look past your husband and look to the Lord and say, I'm going to submit to you, Lord. And in submitting to you, I'm going to submit to my husband because that's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord means this. If you would obey Jesus, you ought to obey your husband. Submit to him. Husbands, love your wives, but it doesn't stop there. How can I love my wife who treats me the way that she treats me, who talks to me the way that she does, who disrespects me in the way that, that, she, uh, that she does in front of my friends or in front of our children? And, and, and how can I love her? Well, you're to love her as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How did Christ love the church and give himself for it? Well, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know God's love for us? Christ's love for us is not based on our worthiness of his love. And so, husbands, if you want 
your marriage to be what it ought to be, you need to look past your wife and look to Christ and say, well, I want to obey Him. And the only way I can obey Him is by being to my wife what He is to me. And so it all comes back to not you, but Christ. It comes back to if we want our home to be uh, uh, strengthened and delivered from the problems that are a result of sin, we've got to get back to God's way. And the only way to get back to God's way is to submit ourselves to Christ. Maybe you're here tonight. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 7 while I'm talking here. Maybe you're here tonight and you've got a situation where you say, ladies, my husband isn't even saved. How can we put Christ in our marriage if my husband's not saved? Or my wife, she doesn't really love the Lord. She doesn't have a walk with God. I question whether she even knows the Lord. I want to show you this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 13, or verse 12, rather. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And it gives the reason, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. What's he saying here? Look at verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or, what, or, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You know what this admonition is? This is an admonition that says... Even if your spouse wants nothing to do with the Lord, you can still be what you ought to be in your marriage. You can still be the Christian in the home. And it's very possible that God could use you to get a hold of the heart of your spouse. And so there is, really, when we look at it this way, <clears throat> there really is no relationship that is too far gone where the Lord couldn't work. There is no marriage, men, in which you cannot obey God's command and love your wife even as Christ loved the church. There is no marriage in which the wife cannot submit to her husband as unto the Lord. So regardless of the situation in your home, and I, I know that I'm probably preaching to a lot of people that aren't having problems, and maybe you've got a very happy and pleasant marriage. Praise the Lord for that. But I just want you to know, no matter where you are, you need the Lord in your home. Amen. You need the Lord in your home. Husbands, you need Christ in your life leading you and guiding you so that you can be the husband that you need to be. Ladies, wives, you need Christ in your life so that you can be the wife that you ought to be. And as you learn to submit to and follow Christ, you'll learn to submit to and follow your husband. Put Christ in your home. Make him the center of your relationship. Understand, 
whatever struggles, whatever frustrations, whatever problems come into your home are a result of sin. Remember, only by pride cometh contention, right? They're a result of sin, and the only solution to sin is Christ. And so put Christ in it. Submit yourself to Christ. And determine that you're going to be what God wants you to be. Very quickly, just really, can we go back to Ephesians 5? And I, and I want to show you one more thing before we close here tonight. <clears throat> In marriages, when there are problems, I didn't say if, I said when. When there are problems, very rarely is it one-sided. I've told, told people this before. It's almost never one-sided. It is often lopsided. <laughs> in other words, one person may be contributing to the problems in the marriage more than the other. But it's very rarely only one-sided. However, you cannot control your spouse. And ultimately, you will not answer for your spouse. So verse 22, for instance, says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. It does not say, it does not say, Husbands, be sure that your wife is submitting to you. It doesn't say that. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. It does not say, Wives, be sure that your husband, submit yourself to your husband if he loves you as Christ loved the church. It doesn't say that. Why? Because it addresses the person who can control their situation. Ladies, you will never control your husband, but you can control you. Men, you will never control your wife, but you can control you. And so the admonition is this. Don't look at what they're doing or not doing and blame struggles and problems on your spouse. Don't do that. It's not healthy. It's not good. Look in the mirror and say, Lord, what can I do to be what you want me to be? Pray for each other. Love one another. Forgive. Give grace. And understand it won't be perfect. It won't be perfect. Because we live in a sinful world. It won't be perfect. But by God's grace, your marriage can be good. It can be good. And it is a good thing. So I really just have a couple of words of admonition for you. First of all, if you are here tonight, you are married, thank God for your marriage. Thank God for it. Be thankful for what God has given you. He's given you someone to be your companion, to be your partner, and with whom you can be intimate. Put Christ at the center of your marriage. Yield and submit to Him. And don't let Satan get a foothold by causing you to be discontent with what God has provided and given And if you are not married, we've got young people here who've never been married. 
We've got folks that have never been married, no matter, you know, just in life, they've just not been married. We've got folks who've been divorced. We've got folks who have been widowed. Let me just say to you, be thankful for what God has provided you. But also, if you ever plan to to potentially get married, don't think in your mind that it's always going to be perfect. Young ladies, there is no Prince Charming. But there are godly men. It won't be perfect, but if you put God first, it can be very good. 